Hey, Sex Like This listeners, we are giving away six Bluetooth speakers to six listeners. These custom Sex Like This Thumpa speakers are small but powerful with a 33-foot wireless range and four hours of playtime and they're water resistant. To win one, head to sexlikethis.com, click on the giveaway at the top of the website and answer this week's question. What was the name of the amazing woman featured in episode one? Don't forget to follow at Uncomfortableism for show updates on Twitter. Oh, my dating life was like, I don't know, taking a flamethrower to a library. Because it was all about, you know, trying to control uncertainty and avoid and control difficult emotions. And I was like, there's something I think I just said, ah, I think I'm depressed and there's something going on with sex. I think that's that was probably the way I presented to the counselor. There are over 7 billion people on the planet, and most of us are looking for love. So if we couple off, you know, unless you've come up with a more interesting arrangement, that means there are theoretically about 3.5 billion people in the world that could be the one for you, and counting. So with all of these options, why do we always hear the same love stories? The cookie-cutter, storybook version of what it's like to fall in love is told over and over again. Well, friends, that stops here. You're listening to Sex Like This, a podcast brought to you by Uncomfortable Revolution about sex and dating with a chronic illness or disability. I'm your host, health journalist Nicole Edwards. I guess I knew kind of about depression. I was at a point where even the slightest thing that went wrong or even the possibility of something going wrong, I was I would just like spiral into the deepest hole imaginable uh, and like was totally convinced that the world was going to end and like could really feel that. Like if I saw, I don't know, if I just saw like a kid drop an ice cream cone on the street, I was convinced I would collapse in tears and never get up again. Like I was, I was like, I don't know, like a muscle that's just so worn out. The reason Mark's brain felt like a worn out muscle is because his brain had been working on overdrive for a long time. Most of his life, actually. He remembers being little and obsessing for weeks about leaving a cup on a friend's coffee table. He says that every time the phone rang, he was sure it would be his friend's mom calling to say that the cup Mark had left had made a ring on the table and they were going to have to throw the table out. Most of us would forget leaving a dish somewhere in a friend's house almost instantly. But Mark thought about it for weeks. And because this intense rumination was something Mark did for most of his life, he didn't have a reference point for whether or not the amount he was worrying was actually reasonable. It was just how he was. And he thought everybody's brain worked like that. Like, it it just became the norm. So the challenge then with that is that by the time things, you know, I was much older, like, say, in my 20s, like, I was really becoming very disconnected from reality to the point that, you know, I thought people were trying to poison me all the time. I thought I was always being watched in my home. I would stand in front of the stove and just watch it to make sure it didn't spontaneously turn on and and combust and burn the apartment down. Uh, And that would be after, like, doing all sorts of rituals to check it and make sure that it was off. Uh, And I still saw all of that as totally normal. The more Mark's compulsive behavior started to escalate, the harder it was for him to do normal day-to-day stuff. Because if I was walking along to the grocery store and in my head, I thought, oh, like, I'll get, uh, I'll get, I don't know, some cucumbers and some tomatoes, I'll make a salad. As soon as I would think that, in my head, I would see 
Like I would see myself like slicing a cucumber and slicing off my fingers. And I would feel it up my arm, like the pain in my nerve. Then I would have to check my fingers to make sure they were still there. And it just became to the point where to my, to my brain, it was real. And it's probably similar to what happens when we dream, right? Like we, we believe the dream and that, that just became the norm. Like my brain would come up with things and like I no longer could believe what I was seeing. And then that would go into things like I find like the checking, the, the more we check, the more we chase certainty, the more uncertain we become and the more disconnected from reality we become. So like in relationships, for me, like I, I, I would need to have physical contact to sort of prove to myself that I was likable or that person liked me. But then inevitably I just, I would need that all of the time. If I hooked up with somebody, cause I was like, okay, I, I need to hook up with this person. And then like, okay, I've, I've reassured myself, like I'm attractive or I'm likable or whatever. But as soon as I would do that, I would need to do it again and again and again and again, like just like checking the door lock, checking the stove, whatever. We often try to put these things into like little categories, but really it's like an interaction with uncertainty. And so that's across the board. That's with the stove, with a knife, with crossing the street, with relationships, the works. Mark, as he often says himself, has been slapped with a whole bunch of mental health diagnoses over the years. OCD, anxiety, depression, addiction, and the addiction part ended up manifesting sometimes as sex addiction. And that craving for intimacy didn't lead to long-term relationships for Mark. I was completely obsessed. You know, if, if I was into something, then I was, I was completely obsessed. Or if I made some like, judgment about them, even the tiniest judgment, then I'd be like, oh, like, it's, it's over there, the wrong one. We have to end this now. And I'd completely check out. I'd just like ignore them. <laughs> I, I can say I did that in every relationship. Like before I started to work on my mental health, I hadn't, you know, as far as I can remember, like never been dumped or anything like that. In, and this always would happen in relationships because, again, that inability or that lack of skill to handle uncertainty. So if there was one little thing that to me made the person no longer perfect, it was over. You know, a, a big part of something like that, too, is like getting into control and avoidance. So not only would I be trying to avoid feelings, I'd be trying to control the other person. Like I might be... And this this hilarious thing always happens where, so if I've decided that this, you know, this person I'm dating isn't right for me, I can remember doing this. I'd be like, okay, that person's not right for me, but I don't want to experience the pain of telling them that. So I'm going to make them dislike me now. Or I'm going to make them feel dissatisfied in the relationship. So they, they break up. And like that kind of manipulating uh, was something I did all of the time. Eventually, Mark becomes acutely aware of how unhappy his habits around sex and dating are making him. He starts to think that maybe he's depressed and reaches out to a therapist for help. Yeah, so actually what happened first was because, and this this is often the case in mental health, because um, we just don't talk about these things. And so when I went in, of course, I'm saying, oh, okay, it's depression and sex. So they sent me to a psychologist who specialized supposedly in sex and mental health. And she was terrible, like really terrible. And so she was really bad. So then I went back to the counselor that I'd first spoken to and I told her you should never send anybody to that therapist ever again. And also that I'm still, everything still sucks. 
so let's do something else. And then because I had already started to get a hold on some of the, what I could see were like some, some problematic compulsions around like hooking up with people, I think when I went back to the counselor, and, and this is quite common for people, that when you start to cut out one compulsion, your brain just explodes in other areas. So I feel like I had gone back to that counselor and I was like, okay, look, ever, ever since I've stopped doing the following, like I can't, like sometimes I can't leave my house and, and here's what's going on in my head. And then I think she was like, oh, why don't we look at some other options here? And then she got me into an OCD treatment program. The OCD program was, was incredibly helpful in that I learned how to make changes in my life. I learned how to accept difficult emotions and do the things that I actually care about doing. What's unfortunate is that, again, because the mental health care system is so divided up around imaginary lines, doing anything around sex or relationships wasn't something we could cover there because it didn't technically fall under OCD. But it was really the way you you make any change is the way you make every change. And so through that program, I was able to learn how to start make changes. I was able to learn how to sit with uncertainty and uncomfortable feelings and make healthier choices. So then I was able to take what I learned there and apply it in all of these other areas of my life that didn't you know, fall under what's technically considered OCD. So it was really, it was th that therapy I got there was just so useful for learning how to handle emotions that I'd never learned how to handle and then make better decisions. And so, yeah, it was, it was, that's where I first learned that I could actually start to uh, change stuff and handle the stuff in my head differently. Luckily, Mark had enough perspective to draw the connection between OCD and his personal habits around sex and dating. The strategies that he had honed to wrangle his other compulsive behaviors he thought might work when it came to his love life too. And so there were like little exercises that um, I did at the start when I started dating. I can remember even like I would go on a second date even if I didn't like the person and I didn't think they liked me that much. If I was like, oh, this is never going to work out, I would go because I was working on not listening to my brain. Like listening to my brain had been terrible for everything in life. So yeah, dating at first was very much about setting up little exercises like that. I remember getting really excited the first time somebody dumped me. Wait. What? Because, you know, I wasn't the one just saying, oh, this isn't going to work. I'm out of here. Uh, you know, I stuck around and sat with it and, you know, made, you know, put myself into it, gave the things I wanted to give uh, as a person, not about trying to chase some right relationship. The biggest benefit of all of this was learning how to not do that stuff in my head and, and just be present with the other person uh, and be present with myself even and what I'm feeling and just let that be there. Uh, or what I'm not feeling, and let that be there too. That's just made relationships and intimacy so much more enjoyable. Before we go, I want to tell you about Pandia Health. With Pandia Health, you'll never run out of birth control again because you can skip the trip to the pharmacy each month. They deliver. Whether you're on the pill, the patch, or the ring, Pandia Health has an option for you. And as a little added bonus, Pandia Health is the only women-founded and women-led reproductive health company specializing in birth control delivery. Enter code UREVOLUTION for $5 off your next order. That's the letter U, REVOLUTION, for $5 off. Sex Like This is an Uncomfortable Revolution podcast hosted and produced by me, Nicole Edwards. 
please get in touch if you want to share your story. You can email podcast at urevolution.com or head over to our website, sexlikethis.com, for more amazing stories about dating and sex with a chronic illness or disability.